Hey, everybody. Wow, that's loud. The voice of God. Oh, man, I'm so excited to be here. Uh, Barry, I, I hope you guys know you're at like theological Disneyland here. Barry is a legend, and um, his, I, I love like, <laughs> I love how uh, we just like can, we can just go totally like geek and just talk astrophysics and neurology, and most pastors don't like to talk about that stuff, but me and Barry totally vibe with that, and um, I'm really excited for today, and I'm, I'm really honored to be here. Barry, thank you for having me like it's just so humbling and an honor and um i'm really excited to go deep with you guys barry kind of set up the tea for me um this is kind of like a hanging curveball it's a melon it's just like a softball because i feel like you guys are so well taught and you're so deep and i was saying do you guys usually like do the same thing wednesday and sunday like equal depth and barry's like yeah he, i love how you said sometimes people will say man you you treat Sundays like they're Wednesdays, and I love that. So we're just going to go deep today. I I want to give a message that I think is interesting, so let's do it. Um, turn with me in your Bible to Romans 15, verse 4. And uh, this is going to be an overview of the Bible. Since we're here, we might as well. I always like to say, since we're here, we might as well talk about the meaning of life, too. The Bible says um, that God rejoices over you with joy, and he rejoices over you with singing. So God gets so happy when he thinks about you that he literally bursts out in song. He doesn't endure you, he enjoys you. The meaning of your life, even as the catechisms teach, the meaning of your life is to enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. To enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. You can't do enough good things to get God. You can't do enough bad things to lose God. Because on your worst day with God, you're better off than on your best day without God. And when you're going through your worst, God is planning his best. Because you don't have to behave to get saved. You just believe and receive. Because we trust in, walk with, talk to, follow after, lean into, and depend upon the God of hope. Who is imaged in the life of Jesus. Who the Bible calls the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Emmanuel, Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the Bread of life, the light of the world, the way, the truth, the life, the line of the tribe of Judah, the door for his sheep, the shepherd who lays down his life for his lambs, the vine who gives fruit to his branches, the word of God made flesh, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the resurrection, and the life, the prince of the kings of the earth, the amen, the root of David, the man of, of the God, he's Jesus Christ, who holds the double-edged sword and the bright and morning star, he is the anchor of hope and the image of the invisible God, the son of man, he's the king. King of kings and Lord of lords who put death to death so we don't have to be scared to death of death. Because at the place of the skull, he crushed the skull of the serpent with the crown of thorns on his skull. Hashtag no big deal, low-key, world domination. That's our hope. Let's go. That's how we think. We think totally different from the world. <laughs> like, like when the Bible says you are a peculiar people, it doesn't mean you're weirdos. No translation will render that. You are weirdos. No, a peculiar people means you're holy. What does holy mean? Holy doesn't mean you're um, like an uber moralist goody two-shoes. Holy means set apart. You're set apart. You think peculiar. You're different from the world. Out there in the world, there's a lot of dope dealers when you go out of these doors, but we need some more people who are hope dealers. Can I get an amen? (laughs) That's what we need. So that was my intro. Romans 15.4 is going to give us an overview of the Bible and how the scriptures give us Hope. So I want to trace, uh, with the time that I have with you, uh, 10 key points in regards to flying 30,000 feet up, finding a thesis thread that runs through the treatise of truth, 
and how we can see hope is the overarching narrative arc of the story of scripture. So let's take a look at Romans 15, four together. And, uh, we're just going to go deep into the scriptures today since that's what you guys always do. And it makes me very happy. Paul the Apostle is writing this. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 66 books written by 40 different authors, 14 of which were written by Paul. And Paul tells us the teleologic purport and meaning as to why the Bible is written. And I hope that after this, you'll realize we have enough yours in the world. We need some more tiggers. We have enough people who tell it like it is. We need some more people who tell it like it can be. We have enough people who tell us you're going to die soon. But we need some more people who tell us you ain't dead yet. (laughs) We have enough bad news in the world. We need more good news. Whether you're right or left, Fox or CNN, usually news reports and leads with bad news because bad news sells. I remember a few months back, I was doing a TV interview on ABC in Las Vegas, and I told the host during the show, I'm like, you know you guys lead with bad news, right? That's what every news station in the world does, because neurologically, bad news sticks to the brain like Velcro, whereas good news falls through the brain like water through a sieve. And in order to assimilate good news into your cranial package, psychological constitution, and cerebral gray matter, you have to meditate on said good news for 15 seconds. So Paul was onto something when he said, meditate on what's true, noble, lovely, just, pure, virtuous, and praiseworthy, but because bad news sticks, that's why news stations repeat their own feed every 30 minutes, because bad news sells. If you don't believe me, just go on Facebook. If you have 10 comments and nine are nice and one is mean, what are you focused on? We're always thinking about the negative, the bad news. So we need good news, gospel. That's what we're going to meditate on. I know it's hard to meditate on good news because it often falls to the brain like water through a sieve or water off a duck's back. But the truth of the matter is, we think it's too good to be true, but I believe God says it's so good, it's got to be true. Because not all things are good, but all things work together for the good because God's good. So let's take a look at Romans 15, 4 to see this narrative arc of hope woven throughout scriptures. Paul writes, Romans 15, 4, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Everyone say hope. Hope. Now, I love it when pastors and preachers can speculate as to why the Bible was written. I love when commentators tell us, here's why I think the Bible was written, but I'd rather hear it straight from the horse's mouth. I mean, Paul wrote 14 books of the New Testament. And he says, we wrote the Bible, we wrote the scriptures to give you hope that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, you might have hope, which means if we walk away from a Bible study as children of God with less hope rather than more hope, it is a giant exercise in missing the point. Because Paul says the scriptures were written that through patience and learning, we might have hope through the patience and comfort of the scriptures. So Paul says the Bible is written to give you hope. And what's amazing about this is Paul would go on to say in Romans 12, 12, we're to be rejoicing in hope. His life was anything but easy. I mean, it was not Pegasus steak and rainbow sandwiches. He got canned more than tuna. I mean, he was in prison all the time. He said, I'm in prison more frequently than all of you. (laughs) And yet, despite getting scourged with whips, shipwrecked, spending a day and night at the deep, Despite all of his perils and tribulations and dangers of robbers and waters, nakedness and storm, dungeons often, famine, despite all of this, 
He says the scriptures are our source of hope. We learn the scriptures that through its patience and comfort, we might have hope. How do we see hope in the scriptures? Well, I want to, I want to kind of trace 10 threads throughout the scriptures that give us hope. Number one, and they all start with E. So this took a while. So I hope you appreciate the alliteration. (laughs) Number one, the Bible shows God's plan to effectuate the universe. Everyone say effectuate the universe. I had to use the word effectuate because that's just another word for create, but they all start with E. So God has a plan to create, to effectuate (laughs) the universe. The universe is unfolding as it should. Through galactic dispersal and red shift, we know that the universe is moving, that all the galaxies are moving away from all the other galaxies simultaneously at ever accelerating rates. And what's amazing is the universe moves on, so shall I. But scientists now tell us that the universe used to exist in, a, in an initial singularity, which was a point of infinite density, smaller than a sugar cube. Time didn't exist back then. There, the clock wasn't ticking, nor was it not ticking. There was no such thing as time. And all the four fundamental laws of physics, the strong and weak nuclear forces, electromagnetism, gravity, they were all in this condensed point of, of infinite density called the initial singularity, it then explodes into existence. The galaxies are on the move. And just as you can tell how far away an ambulance is by the fading cacophony of its sirens, so too you can tell how far away galaxies are by the fading light, by the redshift it leaves behind. But now we see the universe is moving. And that sounds an awful lot like Genesis to me. (laughs) In the beginning, God created. So God creates the universe. And Paul said to the Areopagus, Athenian metaphysician philosophers at Mars Hill in the book of Acts, in God, we live and move and have our being, which Albert Einstein discovered scientifically is true. Albert Einstein told us about what was called the Higgs field. I don't know if you're aware of this, but everything's made of atoms and atoms are 99.9% empty space. And if you took out all the empty space from all the atoms in the universe, the universe would fit inside a sugar cube. And science tells us it once did. Now watch this. If atoms are 99.9% empty space and they make up everything, I always like to say, don't trust atoms. They make up everything. (laughs) Just seeing if you're awake. Okay. If atoms are 99.9% empty space and everything's made of atoms, how do we accrue mass? It's because we rub up against what's called a Higgs field. It's a universal field against which our quantum particles rub against to slow down from light speed to accrue and acquire mass. Sounds a lot like God to me. (laughs) In God, we live and move and have our being. But we see this all in one verse. Look at Genesis 1.1. Well, you don't have to turn there, but Genesis 1.1, you know it, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what's interesting is the Hebrew verb create in Genesis 1.1 is never used of human. It is only used of divine activity because no human has ever ex nihilo bara created something out of nothing. Artists can reassemble the particles of paint in a palette to make a painting, but they cannot create those chemicals out of nothingness. Songwriters, they can reassemble vibrations to put a song on the radio, but they cannot create the subatomic particles that make up vibrations or the particle wave duality out of nothing. Only God can create something out of nothing. One of my favorite songwriters poetically once said, I don't write songs, I dig up artifacts. 
And all I'm doing is unearthing artifacts. I'm an archaeologist, not a songwriter. He says, I find my songs. I don't create them. J.R.R. Tolkien, one of my favorite authors, said, we are sub-creators. So that's why Genesis 1.1, the Hebrew verb create, is only used of divine and never of human activity because only God can bara, ex nihilo, create something out of nothing. But here's what's really cool. In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, the beginning is a measurement of time. Everyone say time. God created the heavens. The heaven speaks of space. Everyone say space. And he created the earth. The earth speaks of matter. Everybody say matter. So time, space, and matter. In Genesis 1-1, this has been called the trinity of trinities. Why? Because you see the three fundamental principles of physics in one verse, but each one of those three principles has three inherent intrinsic qualities within themselves. So when you're talking about time, time itself is made up of three properties, past, present, future. When you're talking about the heavens, space, space is made up of three properties, height, width, and depth. And when you're talking about the earth, matter, matter is made up of three properties, three manifestations, solid, liquid, gas. So you have, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens, outer space, the earth, matter, the beginning, time, time, past, present, future, space, height, width, depth, matter, solid, liquid, gas, the trinity of trinities, all in Genesis 1-1, that describes all of physics. <laughs> well, pretty much. There's more to it than that. But isn't that pretty cool? And that's just the first verse of the Bible. Immediately, the Bible's like, we're not skimming off the tops, we're plumbing the deeps. We're not going to be all treble and no bass. Like, we're going ham here. So, God creates all of this in one verse. So, we see, in the very beginning of the Bible, God has a plan to effectuate the universe. Despite what atheists teach, this universe is not a Sisyphean, cyclical, meaningless, existential problem that is going toward the abyss. But rather, the universe is unfolding as it should. Romans 8 says, all creation longs and groans together for the redemption of all things. God is the author of the universe and he will be the finisher. He has a plan as we see in Genesis 1.1. So there's hope for the universe. How sick is that? Number two. The Bible shows God's plan to engender a new humanity. Why do we have hope through the patterns and plans of the scriptures? Because God has a plan to engender a new humanity. This is from Ephesians 2.15 in the NIV. It said, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. That's what Paul says. NIV, Ephesians 2.15 God, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. I love how Paul the Apostle says, those who are in Christ are new creatures. That word creature in Greek is species. You're like an entirely new species when you walk with the God of hope. And look at verse 13. Paul calls him the God of hope right there in verse 13. You, you're, you're an entirely new species. You go from a homo sapien to a hopo sapien. You go from a B-postle to an A-postle. You go from an ain't to a saint. I literally talked to one guy who said, I went from being a dope dealer to a hope dealer. It's amazing. Like, he makes us totally new. The world sees us by our past, but God sees us according to our potential and loves us like that today. He's so good. So don't be sad. You're a new person. You're brand spanking new in his eyes. Don't be sad. 
Because sad spelled backwards is das. And das not good. (laughs) I had to throw in a little course in dad joke right there. But he wants to engender a new humanity. God sees you as a new creature. It's interesting because God, his first commandment in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament scriptures was, don't have any gods before me. Don't create any graven images. Now, why did God say that? Because he already made images of himself, you and me. We as humans are made in the image of God. That's what Genesis 1 says. In the image of God created he Adam and Eve. Adam, Adam in Hebrew means mankind. He created mankind in his image. So God said, don't make any graven images of me. Why? Because I've already made images of myself, human beings. So when we see a guy walking a dog, we're like, oh, cute, a puppy. When God sees a guy walking a dog, he's like, how adorable, a human. We are the highest form of God's creation. We are his crowning jewel. We are a Mago Dei. Psalm 8 says we are crowned with glory and honor. The Bible says we're to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. The Bible says in the book of Psalms, the earth he has given to the sons of men. Paul said, all things are yours. That's my favorite verse right now. Like pretty all-encompassing. Paul said, all things are yours. Luke 15, the father tells the elder brother to the prodigal son, everything I have belongs to you. Like you are my image. Take over. You are more than conquerors. In Greek, that's literally super overcomers. You have one on your team who's braver than Batman, stronger than Superman, more indomitable than Iron Man, more audacious than Ant-Man. His name is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? He engenders a new humanity. It's interesting, the lie of the serpent was that they were not made in the image of God. Remember? In Genesis 3, the serpent comes slithering in. He's the father of lies. Lying is his native language. He's really good at being really bad, craftier than any other beast of the field, the Bible says. The serpent slithers in, and what does he say in the story? God told you not to eat the forbidden fruit because he knows in the day that you do, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. But what did Genesis 1 say two chapters earlier? In the image of God created he them, Man and woman were made in his, the word is, likeness. They were already made like God. But the enemy said, if you eat from the forbidden fruit, God knows you'll be like him. He's holding out on you. And that's the lie of the enemy. He tries to make us believe that God is holding out on us something he's already given to us. Genesis 1, they are made in his likeness. But the enemy says, God doesn't want you to be like him. Interesting. That's the lie that he gives us today. That God's somehow holding out on us something he wants to give to us. No, he engenders a new humanity, creates us in his image, makes us in his likeness. We are one new humanity made Imago Day. Number three, and I'll go quick. Don't worry, I will end on time. I'm determined. Number three, why do we find hope in the Bible? Because the Bible shows God's plan to eradicate our fear. Everyone say eradicate our fear. Do you know what the most repeated commandment in the Bible is? Do not fear. Now I need to hear this because I'm a scaredy cat by nature. I have really bad anxiety and OCD. Actually, I have CDO. It's like OCD, but the letters are in alphabetical order like they're supposed to be. If you don't believe me that I have OCD, I don't know if like during worship, I'm just pulling this thing out like my organic hand sanitizer right here. Like I have some serious OCD. Might as well do it right now because who knows what I touched. But um, 
the truth is God has not given us a spirit of fear. Fear, you know, fear is really bad for you, right? Like even physically. Do you know the two of the typical diseases of modern life, the coronary thrombosis and stomach ulcers are often the, the derivative of thought life. Fear releases more than 1,400 known physical and chemical reactions in the body and triggers more than 30 different hormones and neurotransmitters. Like fear is really bad for you. The Bible says a broken spirit rots the bones, meaning your spirit affects your bones. But the Bible conversely says a merry heart does good like medicine. Did you know that when you laugh a hundred times, it has the same effect on your body as being on a rowing machine for 10 minutes or a stationary bike for 15 minutes? So if you want better abs, laugh at my jokes. I'm just saying. (laughs) But why does science show that depressed people get colds more frequently than non-depressed people, whereas people who live more, laugh more, live longer? It's because laughter releases neuropeptides in your body, which strengthens your immune system. Proverbs 31, it's one of my favorite verses. I just take it out of context. It says, the virtuous woman laughs without fear of the future. Now, I know it's speaking to the virtuous woman, but I'll take that for myself. Like, I want to laugh without fear of the future. I want to like, I love what my friend Cam says. He says, when fear visits the world, people tremble. When fear visits the God living inside of us, we crack up. Like, I just want to like laugh uproariously in the face of fear. This is what the Bible says. God is love. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And if you're the temple for the Holy Spirit and God lives in you and fear and love are like matter and antimatter, they cancel each other out. They're mutually exclusive. Then if God is love and love is in you and you're the temple for the Holy Spirit and he's not giving you the spirit of fear, but a power and love, which casts out all fear and a sound mind, then that means you can't be afraid. You say, well, why do I feel emotions of fear? Every time we feel fear and our amygdala lights up, it's because we're believing a lie, false evidence appearing real. F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. F-E-A-R, forget everything and run. F-E-A-R. But when you walk with the God of hope, it's F-E-A-R. Faith, everything, and rise. Come on. No fear. Zero fear. You want to know how much fear you should have? Zero. Absolutely none. God has not given us the spirit of fear. I love it when people criticize me on my Instagram sometimes. They're like, my friend Cody was, cl- he's, he was climbing up this like pyramid and stuff with no climbing gear and just being crazy. And we love to skateboard and stuff. And sometimes people are like, you guys are crazy. Like, you guys are so childish. I'm like, thank you so much. Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must become as a child. So we want to be like with a reckless abandon, childlike wonder, unapologetic optimism, be nonconformist adventurers and be absolutely fearless. Like, that's how God's called us to live. Life is so much better when you don't give in to fear. He's come to eradicate our fear. That's why the most repeated command in the Bible is don't fear. I've read that it's in the Bible more than 200 times. Some people actually claim, depending on how you count it and what translations you use, that the commandment fear not is in the Bible 365 times, which is pretty cool if that's true, because that'd be one for every day of the, uh, of the year. How are you guys doing so far? Are you doing okay? Okay. We're on, we're on time still. Number four. The Bible shows God's plan to encourage our love. I, I like can never give this kind of message out of town, like when I'm on the road, because I have like some staple messages, but I love that we can just go deep today. Is that cool? Okay. Number four, the Bible shows God's plan to encourage our love. Encourage our love. This verse has always baffled me. Jesus said, where two or more are gathered, there am I in the midst. 
That never made sense to me because I thought Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the ending of the age, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. So like, why would he say, where two or more are gathered, there I'm, I'm in the midst? Like, isn't he in the midst if I'm by myself? Well, yes, of course the Lord's with me wherever I go. Where can I flee from his presence? The question isn't where is God, the question is where isn't he? You can make your bed in Sheol or dwell in the uttermost deeps of the sea, take the wings of the morning or send up to the heavens, he's there. So what does it mean when he says, where two or more are gathered, that's when I'm in the midst? What did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Who is the Father? 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16. God is love. God is love. And in order for there to be love, there has to be two or more. You can't have love if it's just the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Like, I need somebody to give love to. I need, I, need, I need a neighbor, or even an enemy, for that matter. G.K. Chesterton said, God told us to love our neighbor and to love our enemy because most of the time they're the same person. <laughs> and you need two or more to exchange love, and where love is, there God is, for God is love. Where two or more are gathered, there am I in the midst. He has come to encourage our love. Jesus said, out of the 613 precepts that make up the commands of Scripture, the most important is Shema, which means hear, doesn't just mean listen, it means obey in Hebrew. Here, love the Lord your God, O Israel, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love, love. It encourages our love. And love hopes all things. Listen, my message is a message of hope. Like everywhere I go, that's what I do. I share hope messages. But some people say, well, Paul said faith, hope, and love, simplicity after complexity, the greatest of these is love. But I would remind you that hope is in the middle because it's the adhesive that glued the two together. Yes, love is the greatest, but you can't have love without hope because 1 Corinthians 13 says love hopes all things. Like, I can't love you if I'm like, hey, dude, I really love you, but I have zero hope for your future. (laughs) No, love hopes all things. Love hopes all things. And you can't have faith. Oh, we are saved by grace through faith and hope. Faith, I need faith. Faith is so important. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. But what is faith? Faith is the substance, Hebrews eleven one. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So hope is the engine of faith. So yes, love is the greatest and faith is first, but love's in the middle because it glues the two together. You can't have love and you can't have faith without hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Love hopes all things, First Corinthians 13. That's why hope is in the middle. But watch this. The scriptures are written to give us hope and to encourage our love for love hopes all things. Number five, the Bible shows God's plan to empower resurrection realities to burst through the cracks here and now. The Bible shows God's plan to empower resurrection realities to burst through the cracks here and now. Did you know that every time Jesus predicted his crucifixion, he invariably also concurrently predicted his resurrection. So Jesus would never predict his crucifixion without also predicting his resurrection. And what's interesting is Jesus said, so too, if you want to follow me and save your life, you must lose it. For a seed must die and be buried to rise again. Jesus said, whoever would follow after me, he must take up his cross daily. Now, I want to drop a hope bomb on you. Because I believe that fun is fundamental. (laughs) I believe that Jesus puts the fun back in funeral. 
that he causes the dead to raise, the lame to leap, the blind to see, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear, the lost to get found. But a lot of people say walking with God isn't fun because Jesus said you must carry a cross daily to follow me. Forget that Jesus said in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I give you joy that no man can take from you. Forget the fact that Psalm 16, 11 says, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. Forget the fact that Nehemiah eight ten says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Forget the fact that Galatians five twenty two says, the fruit of the spirit is joy. Walking with God can't be fun because God tells us we have to carry our cross in the scriptures. The reason I so firmly disagree with that And by all scripture, the narrative arc points to the contrary, that the authors were right. Walking with God was meant to be joyful. The fruit of the spirit is joy. Jesus does give us the joy that no man can take from us. The joy of the Lord is our strength. In the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. John said, these things I've written to you, that your joy may, may be full. I believe that Jesus did call us to have joy. He clearly said that. So did Paul. So what does it mean when he says, take up your cross every day? How can that be a joyful experience? Even though Jesus was the man of sorrows, Isaiah 53, who suffered hematidosis, the capillaries in his face bursting in the garden of Gethsemane, when he embraced the cross, despised the shame, even then, Hebrews 12 says there was joy set before him. When Jesus carried his cross, he did so with joy. There was joy set before him. Now, let me tell you what it means to carry a cross. When Jesus was 11 years old, there was a rebel named Judas the Galilean who took some of his firebrand insurgents and he raided the royal armory at Sephoris, which belonged to the Romans, which was four miles away from Jesus's hometown of Nazareth. The Roman judgment on Judas the Galilean and all of his rebel cohorts was to deal swift and summarily with their uprising by crucifying them. So Rome crucified 2,000 of these rebels and lined them on crosses along the road. And they were executed because crucifixion was a Roman executioner torture device. It was capital punishment. So Jesus theoretically could have, as an 11 year old, just walked out the door and he would have seen 2000 crosses on the road as he's walking down the road, 2000 crosses because Sephora's was only four miles from where he lived. 2000 of them were lined along the road and etched like psychic acid on his young brain, he would have remembered what crucifixion looked like. Rome just executed all these rebels. Jesus grows up. He's in his 30s. He says, that's what following me is going to be like. It's going to be like carrying a cross. But listen, carrying a cross does not mean you refuse joy. It doesn't mean you live a miserable life. Jesus had joy set before him even when he carried his cross, Hebrews 12 too. Carrying a cross historically was an anti-violence message. It was, I know the Roman boot is on the Jewish neck. Don't fight back. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Put away your sword, Peter. Take up a cross instead. This is this was Peter and Jesus's area of conflict. Remember when Jesus called Peter Satan? Like, that'd be a bad day. It's like, how was your day, honey? All oh, work was okay, but my boss called me Lucifer. It's like Jesus called me Satan today. It wasn't the best day. When did Jesus say, get behind me, Satan, when Peter was speaking to him? Peter rebuked Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said, I must go to a cross. See, right after that happened, Peter said, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. Jesus told Peter, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. Why? Because to them, the Christ was a nationalistic, vindictive, 
emperor who would come bathing the world in the blood of his enemies. But Jesus came to bathe his enemies in the world with his own blood. So he's like, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ yet. You guys have no idea what it means. You think I'm here to pick up a sword to kill my enemies. That's why you're all saying, Hosanna, save now, save us from the Romans. But I'm not coming to take up a sword to kill the Romans. I'm coming to carry a cross. But even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter and Jesus still had this conflict. Peter rebuked Jesus for saying he'd go to the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Then again in the garden, Peter takes up a sword, chops off Malchus's ear. When they come to arrest Jesus, Peter says, put away your sword. Taking up a cross meant you refused to take up a sword against the Romans. And you instead submitted to the cross that the Romans put on your shoulder. And you loved your enemies rather than fought them back. So when the Bible says, if you take up your cross and lose your life, you will save it. When you choose the way of love, greater love has no man than this, than that he lays down his life for his friends. That is the quickest way to resurrection reality. The fastest way to be miserable is to get revenge. The fastest way to be miserable is to carry around all this baggage of unforgiveness. The fastest way to be miserable is to figure out how you can take up your sword and hurt people. The quickest way to resurrection is to die to yourself to deny yourself the desire for vengeance, Peter, put away your sword and take up a cross. So carrying a cross, all of which to say, has nothing to do with living, oh, well, why don't you just be miserable and look like you got baptized in prune juice? Because we have a lot of Christians who look like they got baptized in lemon juice. Right? Doesn't have anything to do with that. Taking up a cross meant love your enemies, take up your cross, put away your sword, turn the other cheek, and go the extra mile because it's never crowded. And when you do this, what happens is, as you die to yourself, you find new life. Resurrection realities burst through the cracks. It's so fun loving people. (laughs) You're just, it's like you are a phoenix rising from the ashes of bitterness. It's so fun loving people. I love it when people are stubbornly mean. So I'm like, you are so stubborn to hate me and I'm going to be so stubborn to love you. You can't make me stop loving you. It's so freeing because then you have all the power. Let's keep going. That's where resurrection reality is. Number six, the Bible shows God's plan to enlighten the eyes of our understanding. To enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Paul prayed for the Ephesians that God would enlighten the eyes of their understanding. The Bible, doesn't it have a way of giving us a whole new perspective on life? Outlook determines outcomes. So when your outlook gets bleak, you try the uplook. When you change the way you look at things, things change the way they look. Because the problem is never the problem. The problem is our perception about the problem. And our hopelessness about a problem is a bigger problem than our problem. When our problem's too big for us, it's just the right size for God. And our praise will be a problem for our problems. <gasps> it gives you a whole new perception. Like, like the Bible just clears up your way of thinking. That's why I love how Jesus said, quoting Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to give recovery of sight to the blind. Like, like Jesus opens our eyes. I once was blind, but now I see. It's interesting. Um, when Watch this. You're going to love this. I learned this when I was teaching in Jerusalem a few weeks ago. One of the uh, tour guides told me this, and I was like blown away. Remember when David founded the city of Jerusalem? He conquered it because it was occupied by Jebusites. And when he attacked the city, the Jebusites taunted, even the lame and the blind could stop you. They said, even the lame and the blind could stop you. And then the verse says, nevertheless, David conquered it. Watch. That was their ancient trash talk. Even the lame and the blind could stop you. That's David. Okay, now watch. Fast forward to the New Testament. 
That was Jerusalem. They said, even the lame and blind can stop you. Nevertheless, he conquered Jerusalem. Watch. In the New Testament, what is Jesus' nickname? He's called the son of David, right? Well, son of man also. But one of his nicknames, moniker, sobercase, is he's the son of David. Before the garden, passion, crucifixion, and resurrection, Jesus only did two miracles in Jerusalem. Two. What were the two miracles Jesus did in Jerusalem? It was healing the lame at the pool of Bethesda and the blind at the pool of Siloam. What was he doing? He's saying, I'm the son of David. They said in the Old Testament, David, you'll never conquer the city. Even the lame and blind could stop you. David nevertheless overtook it and he took care of the needs of Jerusalem spiritually, but, or uh, militarily, pardon me, but the son of David takes care of the needs of Jerusalem spiritually. He says, I'm coming to open your eyes. How cool is that, by the way? Lame and blind, both in those passages. Now watch, that shows he's the Messiah. But watch this, how did he heal the blind at the pool of Siloam? What did he do? He put mud in a guy's eyes, clay. In John 9, it says at least three times that he made clay on the Sabbath and put the clay in the blind man's eyes. Why? Well, he spit in dirt and made clay with it. Because back then, they believed that spit could heal people. If that were true, I'd heal the front row every time. (laughs) But the Roman historian Tacitus talks about Emperor Vespasian healing people with his spit. (laughs) So Jesus spits in the dirt, makes clay, puts it in the blind man's eyes. Now watch this. It says three times at least that he made clay. And that's how the guy saw again. When he made clay, when did he do it? On the Sabbath. Why? Because on the Sabbath, you were not allowed to make clay. Why? Because what did the Jews do for 400 years to build Pharaoh's pyramids with no Sabbath, no day off? What were they doing? They were for four centuries making clay with no Sabbath. Jesus, this is so cool, as the Lord of the Sabbath comes into Jerusalem, he makes clay against the law on the Sabbath to heal this guy's eyes thereby saying, let me make clay so you don't have to. You are slaves to Pharaoh no more. I have come to set the captives free. How cool is that? In other words, you rest, let me do the work. He's come to give us a whole new perspective. He puts clay on our eyes and the eyes of our understanding are enlightened. Number seven, really quick. The Bible shows God's plan to ennoble our work. Ennoble our work. I don't know if you work at a biscuit factory or if you're an emissary visiting today from DC and you work at the White House. I don't know if you're raising kids as a stay-at-home mother or whether you're a professional athlete. I don't care what you do. Every one of us has work to do that matters. Viktor Frankl, who survived the Dachau and Auschwitz concentration camps, was a Jewish psychoanalyst who founded the logotherapy thought process said that man finds meaning in three ways, having people to love, having courage during difficult times, and doing work you find meaningful. Your work matters, and the Bible shows the plan of God to ennoble your work. Listen, God called Adam, Adam in Hebrew, mankind, to be a gardener before he ate the forbidden fruit. Work is not a, a, a result of the curse. 
Adam was called to work the garden, to tend the garden, to keep it. He was called to be a gardener, a worker before he ate from the forbidden fruit. The curse was the weeds would come and the sweat would emerge. But work itself, that was a blessing. The problem is when the last Adam dropped the Adam bomb and ate the forbidden fruit, he was expelled from the garden to work by the sweat of his brow. He was ejected from Eden. But watch, this is sick. Jesus, according to Romans, is called the last Adam. Everyone say last Adam. The last Adam goes back into a garden, the garden of Gethsemane. And Romans 5.1, watch, says we are redeemed through his blood. In other words, his blood is symbolic of redemption. The first place the last Adam bleeds is from where? The sweat of his brow. When he sweat great drops of blood. Why? To reverse the curse and redeem man's work. The first Adam, I thought that was pretty dope if I do say so myself. The first Adam was expelled from the garden to work by the sweat of his brow. That was his curse. So the last Adam goes back into a garden. The garden of Gethsemane bleeds from the sweat of his brow to reverse the curse and redeem man's work. So now everything we do matters. Everything you do, do it unto the Lord, the Bible says. Whatever you do, put your hand to it with all your might. We should be like the hardest workers ever because we're not motivated by law. We're motivated by love. Oh, he loves us so much. Work is part of the Edenic blessing and teleologic calling that he's placed upon our lives. Number eight. Number number eight. Yes, we're on number eight. Here we go. Number eight. The Bible shows God's plan and we'll go quick through these. To edit our narrative. To edit our narrative. Do you ever feel like in life you've lost the plot? Like, your story isn't going anywhere? Watch this. The Bible says God is the author of our faith. Psalm 139 says all our days are written in his book. And Malachi 3.16 says that every word we speak honoring God is written in his book of remembrance. So he's writing your lines of dialogue. All your days are written in his book. And he's the author of your faith. We see this in the story of Jesus. You remember when Jesus was a baby? Herod tried to kill all the kids under two, infanticide. So Jesus flees to what country? Egypt, as a baby. When he comes back from Egypt and grows up, he then passes through the water, the Jordan River, and afterwards wanders in a desert for 40 days. Who wrote that? Matthew. Who was Matthew writing to? Jews. Matthew was writing to a Hebrew audience, a Jewish audience. Why is that fascinating? Because, watch this, Israel, as a nation, when Israel was a baby, Israel was taken to what country? Egypt. And then Israel was freed from Egypt, began to grow up after several centuries. It then passed through water, the Red Sea, and wandered in a wilderness for 40 years, just as Jesus was taken to Egypt as a baby, passed through water, the Jordan, and wandered in a wilderness for 40 days. What was Matthew telling us? Jesus is rewriting your whole narrative. <laughs> he is rewriting your entire story. So if you've lost the plot, you're like, I don't know where my biography is going. I'm having a midlife crisis or whatever. The Lord's like, I got this. I can edit your narrative. That's what the scriptures show us. Number nine. The Bible shows God's plan to eternalize Eden. Oh, this is a good one. To eternalize Eden. 
Go back to Genesis with me. We've been looking at Eden a lot. Watch this. In the book of Genesis. Remember when Adam named the animals? Like giraffe, zebra, pygmy hippopotamus, whatever. He's naming the animals. Why? Because back in ancient Jewish culture, to name something was to have ownership of it. When you named something, you owned it, which is why Revelation 3 says that the, or in the book of Revelation, I forget what chapter, Barry knows because he knows the Bible like by heart. But in Revelation, it says that Jesus will give him who overcomes a white stone. He'll give you a white stone with a new name that no man knows except for the one who receives it. So you're going to get a whole new name, a whole new identity. I can't wait for my white stone. It's going to say like Frodo Baggins, Anakin Skywalker, Peter Pevensey Corson. It's going to be like, yes, all of our name has baggage, but the Lord's going to give us a new name. Why? Because he has ownership over it. I bought you. I bought you. That's what the Bible says. You are bought with a, with a price. You are bought with the blood as it were. Now watch this. Adam names the animals. Why? Because in naming the animals in Jewish culture, to name something meant you owned it. So what was Adam doing? The author's telling us that he's having dominion over the earth and subduing it. Now watch. Jesus, the last Adam, goes into a desert. And when he's tempted for 40 days, it says he was with the wild beasts. He was with the animals, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that the lion and the lamb, the wolf and the calf, would lie together in peace. A child would stick his hand in an adder's den and not be harmed. The young shall lead them. The Bible was looking for a day when man and beast would be at peace with one another. Jesus fulfills that destiny of Adam when he goes into a desert and he's with the wild beast as the last Adam. Why? Because the word Eden, this is sick, the word Eden can be translated either delight or desert. Adam turned the delight into a desert when he ate the forbidden fruit, but Jesus turns the desert into a delight when he's in the valley of Jeshimon, a desert being tempted, and he's with the wild beasts again. And what is he doing? He's eternalizing Eden. So now in the book of Revelation, we see this imagery of the tree of life with fruit for the healings of the nation, the river of life, and we're in a garden again because the last Adam is redeeming all things. Oh, goodness. And finally, as we close, number 10. The Bible shows God's plan to elect us to kingship. Why was Jesus baptized at 30? I end with this. Why was Jesus baptized at 30? Because in ancient Jewish culture, watch this. When a man turned 30, he inherited everything his dad had. When a man turned 30 as a Jew, he inherited everything his dad had. Why is that fascinating? Because when was Jesus baptized? At 30. Did Jesus ever do a miracle before he turned 30? No, none recorded. Because it was when he was 30 that he entered into his father's inheritance. In my father's house are many mansions. Your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. He inherits everything his father has. Fear not, little flock. It is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now we are heirs of God and joiners with Christ and we inherit everything Jesus inherits. We get a kingdom, which is why the Bible says we're kings and priests. <gasps> okay, do you see why we have so much hope? I mean, we only skim the surface. Like, 
we, we just skimmed the surface today, but the Bible is written to give us hope. Why? Because the Bible shows that God effectuates the universe, engenders a new humanity, eradicates our fear, encourages our love, empowers resurrection, enlightens the eyes of our understanding, ennobles our work, edits our narrative, eternalizes Eden, and elects us to kingship. So we're going to go into this world armed with the patience and comfort of the scriptures, which bring us hope. And we're going to go give the world so much hope. We're going to go out there and we're going to say, just because bad things happen around me does not mean they need to happen inside me. I can't control what happens to me, but I can control what comes through me. God doesn't do anything to me. He only does things for me. And if God's going to do something for me, he's first got to work something in me. So because of the scriptures which bring me hope, I'm not going to look down and get distressed. I'm not going to look around and get stressed. I'm not going to look inside and get depressed. I'm going to look up and get blessed because I am too blessed to be stressed. Jesus rose so I could rise. And just because I'm going through hell doesn't mean I need to smell like smoke because we are the people who've gone through hell carrying buckets of water for those still consumed by the fire. So we're going to relax and sit back because every setback is a setup for a comeback. We might be at our rope's end, but we are not at our hope's end. We might be knocked down, but we are not knocked out. We might lose the battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. So we'll never lose the campaign. And yes, hashtag the struggle is real. But so is God. Life is tough, but God is tougher. Life is a battle, but the battle is the Lord's. And no one ever injured their eyesight by looking on the bright side. So we're not going to complain because rose bushes have thorns. We're going to rejoice because thorn bushes have roses. Our past supply is not our last supply. The more desperate the case, the more space for God's grace. God's love is the coal that makes the train roll. So we're going to be strong when everything's going wrong. Our hope will not be dictated by our circumstances. Our circumstances will be dictated by our hope because the Bible shows us that everything's going to be okay in the end. So if it's not okay, it's not the end. And it's okay if you're not okay. It's just not okay if you stay that way. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. You're so good to us, Lord. Wow, thank you for the scriptures. If I didn't have these promises, my problems would overwhelm me. If it wasn't for the scriptures, Lord, we'd be so confused. Thank you for the work that Barry's done here of equipping, enabling, ennobling, empowering us by his faithful Bible teaching year after year. And I just thank you so much for the hope that we find in scripture this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand with me in just a minute? Uh, we're going to sing songs of worship together. And uh, I, I talk kind of fast, so I'm sorry about that. But if I don't, all my thoughts get piled up and I forget what I was going to say. If you'd like to read about some of this stuff, um, I wrote a book called Optimisfits, and during this last song, I'm going to head back there, and if after we sing, you'd like to get Optimisfits, you can read it. I'll write a little hope note in your book if you want, but it just came out like a week and a half ago, and you can read about some of this stuff that we talked about today. And the money doesn't go to me. Uh, the royalties just go right back into the ministry, Hope Generation. So if you'd like, I'll be back there afterward. Guys, thank you so much for letting me hang with you. This is such an amazing church. I love you so much. And let's just worship the God of hope together. Can I get an amen?